What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future opportunities. They partner with local industries and employers, ensuring their programs align to the needs of the community's workforce. Lake Michigan College can help you get to the future you want. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu. Hello. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Abra Behrens. Abra has been a guest on our show before with her sisters. Uh, we talked about how three different people can, but in, in the same family, can come out in so many different kind of specialties in life. And we found out that Abra is an author, but she is a cook. She is an, a connoisseur of vegetables. <laughs> and we're going to be talking with her about vegetables, about herself, about cooking, and about a lot of different things. This is John Smetanka on With Respect, and we will be right back. Abra, how are you today? I'm doing really well, John. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm excellent. I'm just uh, it's a wonderful day, and I'm gonna. I want to learn about vegetables. <laughs> I do. But I also want to learn about you. Now, when we had you before, we had uh, on the show. It was uh, your sisters. Mm-hmm. One is a federal judge. One is a nurse, mm-hmm. and you are a cook. That's true. How did you get into this <laughs> whole thing? I know that the, I know three of you were raised on a farm, and your mm-hmm. father was a doctor, and mm-hmm. so on. How did you get into this yourself, though? Because the other girls didn't. Uh, no, I mean, so my fa- food was always a really big part of our family. Um, both my parents worked a lot. My dad was a doctor. Uh, my mom was a CRNA. So both anesthesiologists and also both farming full time. Um, my dad's family were pickle farmers. And so he, as an only child, stepped in to help out at the farm, but then was also had already started, you know, a medical practice. And so was really doing both. So that meant that our time together in the middle of so much work was really around the table. And um, we had a great garden growing up. Um, My mom was a really incredible cook, and it was just the time to be together. So I think I sort of absorbed it that way. And then like every good farm kid, as soon as I turned 16 and could drive, I wanted to not work on the farm anymore. (laughs) And uh, so I went into town and, you know, found work in a... um, in a restaurant in Holland, Michigan called Paredes and Food. Yep, exactly. Food. <laughs> and I don't know how maybe I just like thought that then like staff lunch would be really good if I were at a restaurant. <laughs> so yeah. it might not have been much more than that. Um and so yeah, that's kind of how it started and then I just always worked in restaurants. Um throughout my life and when I was at the University of Michigan at some point I decided to stay on in Ann Arbor. Um uh, for the summer. And so I, I started working at Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor. Um, and really that's where I started to cook. So I went from, um, 
just taking orders and running trays and ringing people up to into the kitchen. And from there, you know, it sort of feels like maybe you have more <laughs> insight into this as you've interviewed so many people. But a lot of times these big life decisions just feel like, I don't know, maybe I'll take that next step and then it's the next step in sort of a chain of events. And that's how it felt for me. Um, I went from from Zingerman's Kitchen to the kitchen at Ballymaloo Cookery School, which was also situated on a 100-acre working organic farm. And so... Oh, whoa, you just jumped over something very interesting. That was Zingerman's. Yeah. That is not... That is a well-known mm. uh, food operation. Yeah. It's, but it's unique. Tell me, tell me about Zingerman's for a minute. Um, so Zingerman's was founded in 1982 by Paul Saginaw and Ari Weinsweg, um, mostly to to make great food that they weren't finding on their own in Ann Arbor that wasn't already there. Um, and it had uh, you know roots in both of their uh, Jewish family traditions as well as just wanting to find great food. And I think it was the start of, I think what a lot of people now call kind of the food revolution with Alice Waters starting Chez Panisse and you know Dean and DeLuca in New York. And so they ventured out out in that same way. Um, and it went from, it was always kind of a magical combination of fancy food and also very proletariat food, you know, which is a mm-hmm. lot of the fancy food is, is peasant food. Um, and especially foods from the Jewish tradition or foods of the exile, um, foods of tradition, things like that. Peasant food and, mm-hmm. and foods of exile. What does that mean? Um, to me, I think about like, um, like liver mousse, for example. You know, we have these like amazing French pâtés. Well, those pâtés are the offcuts. They're the things that are, you know, you're taking Mm. the liver, the heart, the organ meat, and turning it into something delectable um, because the finer cuts would have gone to a higher class. Um, And I I see that with a lot of Jewish foods too, you know, something like um, haroset, which is the, um, you know, apple raisin sort of salad that's meant to signify the mortar of building the pyramids and like memories of the slavery of enslavement mm-hmm. um, and so I think those traditions are really wound together I mean cheese is the same way it was for people who couldn't get fresh milk you know that's where cheese comes from mm-hmm. um, and so there was a real emphasis on the sort of workman quality of food there and you know there were <laughs> three things you could get fired for uh, showing up drunk or high uh, stealing stealing and disrespecting the food. And mm-hmm. the reason disrespecting the food was so important is not only because, I mean, that necessarily translates to margins and profit and things like that, but more importantly, it's someone's work. And it's it was always the conversation about how food is made and the work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly saw that with how much it takes to grow food. Um, and so, you know, my obsession with mitigating food waste is really, it's not, I mean, yes, it's good environmental policy and it's good practices, but really it's because if you throw something away, you're really dishonoring the work that went into its production. Mm-hmm. Now you talk about you talked about Jewish food and, and other kinds of food that was for the downtrodden people mm-hmm. and, and they had limited things to work with. It, it puts me in mind of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan has mm. the uh, the pasties, mm-hmm. uh, which you know pasties. I love Why don't you a describe the pasty <laughs> for us. Um, well, pasties are, are, you know, a direct part of our immigrant food culture in this country. So Cornish immigrants moved from the UK uh, to work in the mines of northern Michigan. And so, you know, mining folk from Cornwall moved here, similar terrain. Um, and it is a 
um, what is it? I mean, it's every culture has some sort of like savory filling wrapped in dough <laughs> and either mm-hmm. baked or fried if it's an empanada or, um, you know, dumplings, things like that. And um, a traditional Michigan pasty is usually beef with rutabaga and potato and it has some sort of gravy. You know, they're not generally that great, uh, but they can be, <laughs> you know. And so... Uh, I, we have people who live in the UP who are gonna in our hate audience. This. They're going to write. <laughs> and, and we don't want to disrespect them. <laughs> no, and and I do love but a I pasty. Agree with you, by the way. Yeah, I do love a pasty. I think it's. Um, uh, you know, and we, we make them a lot in our household. We often, that's actually our day after Thanksgiving tradition mm. is that we make twice as much turkey as we're going to eat and twice as many roasted vegetables and mashed potatoes and then mix it all together into a filling and then make a lot of pie dough and, you know, make a folded folded like half moon pasty. So it's sort of like a tinless pot pie, I guess mm-hmm. is how I would mm-hmm. describe it pop them in the freezer and then on the nights when you know there's just really you can't be bothered to make dinner (laughs) you can just turn the oven on and take one from the freezer and it can be a real godsend yeah so you got started liking food you were growing food and you got to this restaurant and you learned about respecting Mm -hmm. food yeah now where did you take it from there Uh, you say you say you came up to this thought about uh, uh, about uh, doing being in restaurants or being in food production which was a change of your point of view before you didn't want to raise you didn't want to be a farm girl no as it were. um well it's interesting you know i really credit uh paul saginaw who is like i said one of the owners of zingerman's mm-hmm. deli um and roger bowser who was you know maybe my most important mentor and the first chef i worked under there um for teaching me the how and the why of what i wanted to do when, mm-hmm. when i first started working at zingerman's you know my I was dead set on going into the Peace Corps and potentially going into the Foreign Service and working for the UN and trying to make a little bit of difference for a lot of people. And um, when I started working at Zingerman's, I saw suddenly how, you know, there were... I can't even remember exactly, but say 500 people who worked between all of the Zingerman's businesses who all earn not just a living wage, but a thriving wage, who had health insurance even, like I was a part-time hourly employee and I had access to health insurance. I ate good food. I was treated with respect. I was, you know, it was the expectation was that my managers would look to my strengths and try to utilize those to let me be fulfilled at work Mm -hmm. and what that means to be a good employer. And so suddenly I thought, well, maybe you could make a big amount of change for a smaller group of people. And that was sort of the kind of the realization for me that small businesses are really important. And, um, and so that was kind of the why. And then the how was that I wanted to learn how to cook and mm-hmm. maybe food could do it. And I think Zingerman's was the first place where I really saw that food could be a career and not just a side gig. Mm-hmm. So, but then you mentioned a cooking school, but tell us about that. So at some point at Zingerman's, um, I was kind of looking and and realizing there were things I didn't know, and I was asking to learn more. And there were just limitations on what I could learn on the job there because it's a high-volume, high-paced restaurant. Um, And so, again, Roger, my chef and mentor, says, you know, you don't really – you need some cooking school. You don't really need a a two-and-a-half-year program. Um, You should consider going to Ballymaloo. It's on a 
100-acre working organic farm in the south of Ireland, so it'll appease your desire to travel. Um, Jarena is, you know, one of the <laughs> most amazing instructors, and, and it teaches a philosophy more than just, you know, put this with this. And so I looked into it, and I could go to school without going into debt, which is a tremendous issue for a lot of culinary schools, is that kids come out of these schools with you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And, and it's really hard to earn that back when you're fighting for $15 an hour. Um, so anyway, uh, that was really important and it was only 12 weeks, so it wasn't a huge time commitment and I could travel. So I did that kind of on a lark, um, thinking, Oh, well, I really want to write about food. And so this will just give me more knowledge to do that. Um, and then, yeah, I went and I, loved it. And um, that that school was so dogmatic about the type of food that we made. It was traditional Irish food, had an element of French technique, um, but was really tied to what we were growing on, on the farm there. And I say we sort of loosely. I mean, there was a whole team of farmers and the students weren't really, um, we weren't responsible for that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ideology really came through. And so it was there that I started thinking, you know, I grew up on a family farm. So few people interact with farmers. What would it mean to have a meal that's, you know, really telling that story? And maybe that's what I want to do with my life. What do you mean by that? Tell me about what do you mean by telling a story? Um, well, I mean, for example, do you have a sense of how many like you know what a rutabaga is, right? I do. Do you have a sense of how big a rutabaga plant is in the ground? None. Do you have a sense of when it gets planted? None. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a sense? I see it in the grocery store. (laughs) I used to fix it for Christmas, or Mm -hmm. my dad did. Go ahead. And and that's, I guess that's what I mean. Like, what goes into this production? Who are the people doing this work? What are their successes? What are their hurdles? Um, What does it mean to have this food end up in the grocery store to end up on your Christmas table. And and that's what I think we've lost in our food system. In, in, we've lost a lot of things. We've gained a lot of things. But that's the thing that really strikes me the most is that all of this just comes down to people and people's individual stories, their work, and respecting that work. Um, and so as a sh- it's hard for people to gain access to a farmer schedule. It's a long season, you know, rutabaga seedlings might be planted in the spring and then transplanted at the end of summer and then they're harvested right before frost. That's a long time to hold someone's attention Mm -hmm. for a rutabaga. But uh, at a dinner, we can talk about that and people will absorb it. And if they're in the place where that food is being grown, then it really hits home in that way. And so that's what I mean by telling the story. So you went to school. How long were you in that that school in Ireland? Only twelve weeks, which is just mind-boggling now looking back on it because it is so it was so life-changing. But what did you What did you do after that? Uh, I was lucky enough to stay in the UK and work for another three months. So I I couldn't earn any money because I didn't have a like work permit. Mm-hmm. So I was able to find three jobs that would take me on just to give me an education. So sort of like a. Um, 
you know, like work experience time. So I sold cheese at Neil's Yard Dairy, which I was suited to do because of my time at Zingerman's and their connection. Um, and so I got to do that in London in, uh, you know, famous borough market. And then I spent the month of January cooking for the next most important mentor in my life who's Sky Gingle, um, who took me on despite me not really knowing very much and let me work at Petersham Nurseries, which is this beautiful Victorian glass greenhouse garden center with a Michelin starred restaurant in it Mm -hmm. Um, and she taught me so much about ingredients and all of those things and then after that I made cheese for a month up in the north of England (laughs) I love it we're going to take a break right now we're we're visiting on With Respect with Opera Barons who is a chef from raised on a farm uh, bright family everybody has uh, fascinating backgrounds <laughs> and interests and she happens to have hers in cooking and in growing and in respecting food this is John Smetanka and we'll be right back We're now back on With Respect with Abra Behrens, who is a cook. She is an expert on food uh, and in the history of it. And uh, she's going to talk to us about some of the food, just as examples. She's written a book called Ruffage, (laughs) R-U-F-F-A-G-E. And we're going to find out why that title of this particular (laughs) book. But... We're going to find out more and more about the depth that she can bring to us and her uh, current employer can bring to us uh, about where food comes from, how it is properly handled, when is it ripe to be handled, and so on. And uh, I, my mouth is watering already <laughs> just talking about it. But at any rate, this is John Smetank and one with respect. So, Abra, when, when we broke, uh, you had worked, you had the school in mm-hmm. Ireland for 12 weeks, and you took another three months in the U.K., different parts of the U.K., learning different parts of the food process, different kinds of food, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Then what happened? Then I moved back to the States and moved to Chicago, um, where my now husband is from. So we met and started dating in Ann Arbor. I moved to cooking school. He moved to Chicago. And so I knew I wanted to be near him. So I moved to Chicago and then was richly rewarded with an incredible food community. Um, My first job there was selling pastries uh, at Green City Market. And so my, you know, community really became the growers and producers who were selling at Green City Market. And then um, I also was able to work at a restaurant called V, which is out in Western Springs under Paul Verant who is from Missouri, born and raised, and then um, he is, you know, known for all of his preservation and pickling and and jarring. He's the jar star of Chicago. So I really, you know, that deepened my connection to the local food community in Chicago and how you can have, you know, a Midwestern menu year-round. Well, you know, I have heard it said that uh, New York is the food, uh, the good food capital of the world, Mm. or 
that Paris is the good food capital of the world. Uh, London has a has a book called The Good Food Guide. Mm. And uh, when I was living there, I used to, you know, I was I was introduced to this book as a way, oh, you can get the best restaurants here. Mm. However, I am told that Chicago has a uh, pretty vibrant uh, food uh, community. It really does, and I think Chicago is a stand-in for the Midwest as a whole, where um, it's incredibly diverse, and it ranges from you know everything from Joe's Beef, which is Italian beefs on Orlean Street in in downtown Chicago, that is part of the Chicago Through Fair, um, and then also uh, Alinea, which is Grant Ackett's uh, you know hallowed hall to con- like modernist cuisine um, that's really pushing the boundaries of, of food and art and and how to bring those things together so when someone says well like you know what's midwestern food is it just a casserole like it's both of those things it's also you know so many immigrants and migrants from the south moved north and moved to Chicago because of the the railroads and and so there's a huge mixing pot if it's things like uh, Sunwa who's doing like traditional uh, slow roasted duck or you know the the Hmong community in Minnesota or all of these different different communities have so much different food and you know we grow a lot of food in the Midwest and that's something that you know for being quote unquote flyover country Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation after California. Um, wait, wait, explain that, because mm-hmm. I've heard that said before, and I'm, <clears throat> I want to hear it again. So what does if, that mean? if every state tallies up, you know, the different types of food that they grow, mm-hmm. Michigan is second to California. In what? In variety. Variety. So mm-hmm. you have many different kinds mm-hmm. of food grown here. Right. And so, and I, I think variety is a compelling metric to measure it against as opposed to volume, because that means, I mean, part the, the reason we have such variety is because of our microclimates, because we're a peninsula that's surrounded by the Great Lakes that, mm-hmm. you know, moderate the temperature. So the west side grows a tremendous amount of fruit. Um, over in the Thumb region, there's, you know, a lot of bean and dried pulses infrastructure. In the middle of the state, there's, you know, nice flat land for uh, wheat, corn, soy, barley, oats, things like that. We used to have a huge dairy population, um, asparagus, celery, I mean, I grew up on a pickle farm, (laughs) you know, all those things. Um, Potatoes, you know, were traditionally grown up in the northern part of the state. Um, You know, I could go on. I could go on for for ages. Um, But I think that it's that diversity that that's really meaningful. Okay. I I can recognize your passion. I can see it in your eyes. All right. And your voice and you're passionate about food. You've, you've done your best to get a wide range of experiences. You've had different mentors. You at least remember where you came from. <laughs> Seriously, uh, for you to be able to say, well, so-and-so is my mentor, mm. is to say I remember and I honor that person. Mm. And I've had every, so We all have somebody like that in our lives. Often it's a teacher. Most often it's a parent or, or something in that line. But you, it's interesting you, you have that with your other I, at the tip of your tongue, which mm. is good. I admire that. Now, when you talk about veggies, mm-hmm. vegetables, as being important enough for you to write a book about it, mm-hmm. why that as opposed to meat and potatoes or mm. just meat? Um, 
Well, I guess it was, uh, it's my life experience. So after working through uh, restaurants in Chicago, I was still fixated on this idea of making food that was tied to a place. And to do that, you know, you had to actually be tied to a place. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, you know, was kicking around these ideas. My friend, um, Jess Peace Corps, was talking about doing the same thing. He wanted to become a grower, but wanted there to be a specific outlet for the food that he was growing. And he had some family land up in Northport. Michigan. And so we decided to give it a go. And we started vegetable farming, Uh, vegetable farming, because that's what his background was in. And that's what farmers markets often, you know, had and needed. And I wanted to learn how to grow it just to continue learning. um, And then also to put on these meals that would be based on our farm. So in 2009, we started farming and Farming for me, I mean, it taught me so many things, but it really changed the way that I cook about 180 degrees. So I came up in kitchens that were, you know, it was right at the height of sort of nose to tail Fergus Henderson eating all of the offal and the grizzly bits and and getting really into that. Um, and, you know, I never thought that much about vegetables. Like it was important to have them and, you know, all those things, but it wasn't um, something that really like, it never felt like the star. And then suddenly I was growing vegetables. And so I, we were writing these menus. I was writing these menus that were based around what we were growing. So that inherently mm-hmm. meant I was cooking more vegetables. We also were really broke because, you know, <laughs> vegetable farming is not a super lucrative career. Um, and so, you know, I, we were eating what we grew mostly. And so suddenly I was eating like the best produce. You, can, you couldn't buy it at the store. It was so no, good. All right. That's, you, I've heard people talk about, uh, we had a guest in our show who is uh, a vegan. She, mm. she owned, a, uh, was a part owner of a vegan restaurant in Chicago. And I see you, and you're, you're all of a sudden you just changed 180. <laughs> you're, you're, you're really alive when you're talking about how fantastic they mm. taste. Yeah, I mean, I guess for so many people, I they're vegetables just were never prized so they never got much attention well if you you know if you eat a steamed thing of asparagus with no fat and no salt like yeah maybe it's not that great um but the reason i love vegetables so much is twofold one the sheer diversity so again i guess we're coming back to diversity as a important point you know in the vegetable category we can go from asparagus to tomatoes to winter squash to uh, arugula you know all of those are vegetables they're none of them are alike and if you talk about like meat we've got pork chops and steak and a fillet of fish and you know a chicken breast well those are really similar in a lot of ways like they're they're nuanced and they're different but the texture is the same the way you cook it is generally the same um and the way you cook asparagus is not always the way that you cook winter squash mm. and so i just find It's compelling and there's variety, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, like I was saying, we were really broke. And so I was eating a lot of vegetables and I felt good. Uh, And I I think there's a real danger in equating um, vegetable eating with you know, self-righteousness or sanctimony, you know, it doesn't make you a better person. If it happens to make me feel better, there is scientific data that it is better for our bodies to have a more plant-focused diet, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of those things. But honestly, I mean, I wake up most mornings wanting a cinnamon roll. Like, let's not not lie about it. Um, You know, but I also know that if I 
eat that cinnamon roll, I generally don't feel good. And sometimes I don't want to feel good and I want to just laze around. And so that's fine too. But if I get up and if I have, you know, a hard boiled egg and a big salad of shaved cauliflower and arugula and, you know, pickles and, you know, a, like a nice dressing like that. I'll, for breakfast? Yeah. That, I really love salads for breakfast. Okay. Um, or even something as simple as like, you know, scrambled eggs and toast, but you heap a bunch of, you know, leafy greens on top or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, Mm -hmm. That's a really nice way to start the day. Um, And so that's kind of how it changed for me was it was what I was showcasing. And when I, so I guess the the story that's in the book and the introduction is that the first year we were farming, I took a side job in a winery, just pouring in their tasting room. And I was so broke that I was just eating carrots, baby kale, and eggs because we had <laughs> it's in your face <laughs> just for, to note for the listener John just grimaced um, so but no I mean the carrots were getting sweeter and sweeter because it was frosting and when they frost the you know starches convert to sugars and then we had had a, these kale plants that we'd had all season and they got really aphidy so we cut them back but the plants were trying to get that last little bit of sunlight to photosynthesize so it was these baby little baby kale leaves and the eggs were from chickens that were on our farm so the yolks were like brilliant orange and Mm -hmm. so good and and I could make a million different meals out of that you know one night I would grate the carrots and make like a carrot latke with a kale salad and the next day I would have roasted carrots with like a hollandaise sauce and a kale salad (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and then you know roast the kale and make kale chips and have that with you know (laughs) carrot soup or whatever there's a million different ways to do it and none of the meals were the same And so then I got home to Chicago, started working for a while. Every fall, I would work in a pie shop and help out um, making pies for Thanksgiving. And I was eating like as much pie as I wanted. I was eating (laughs) pot pie for dinner and drinking as much coffee as I could manage. You know, I was eating all the things I was missing. And, um... And then I felt like garbage. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go store and buy some carrots, some freaking kale, and some eggs. And I felt better. And so it really well, changed. Wait, wait, that, that's interesting. That, that is, is a very interesting point. You felt better when you're eating poverty food, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. You felt better than when you had the ability to have those things that you couldn't have on mm-hmm. the farm, pies, and, uh, uh, and salami and, salami cheese, and, and cheese and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Why? And when you say you felt better, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, when I, felt, I just felt like more energetic, less kind of laden. Um, my digestion was better. You know, we benefit from having fiber in our diets, you know, um, so, yeah, I just, I don't know how to describe it better than that. And that well, I let's, let me just start. Let's mm-hmm. just take it apart. Number one, you had more energy. Mm-hmm. Number two, your digestive system worked better. Mm-hmm. Number three, what about the rest of your, your health and your body? Did that, was there anything else about the way that composes what we think of as feeling really good? Can you think of any? I mean, for example, I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I feel stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can walk farther. I can uh, work longer. I My th- brain is functioning better. I think the best way to describe it is what we want versus what we need. 
you know, and as, as humans, we're designed to want calorically dense foods. You know, we prize fats and sugars and salt. Um, it's what we've been, you know, through the generations, you know, that's how we survived. Um, but what we need in a lot of ways is the micronutrients that are in plants, you know, the vitamins and the minerals that are in it. And this is, again, is just about balance. You know, I'm not saying don't eat any fat. I think that vegetables are, are, you know, better with fat and a lot of vegetables, uh, the micronutrients are fat soluble. So you need them, um, to really unlock all of that, but it's just about that balance. And it's the same reason why I still eat meat. I love meat. You know, I didn't, I didn't cut that out. I just, I like it in conjunction. And now I don't, I guess I'm not, you know, really that good at describing this because it's so much a part now. It's hard for me to dissect it because mm-hmm. it's, it's a culture. It's the culture in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's like eating a pork chop with a buttery sauce. It needs to have a vegetable for balance. Otherwise it's just not balanced. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that most chefs are striving for balance in their food. And that means, you know, between acidity and, you know, saltiness and all those different notes. Wow. We're going to take a break right now. <laughs> We're talking to Abra Behrens, who is an advocate for veggies with your meat. Which, <laughs> now, this woman, I'm, I'm in really, I'm in great like over this because I love my meat as well as uh, my vegetables if I don't ruin them. <laughs> and I usually ruin them. And when we come back, you're going to tell me how I cannot ruin <laughs> my, my veggies. All right. This is John Spintanker on With Respect, and we will be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Abra Behrens, who is the author of a new book called Ruffage, R-U-F-F-A-G-E, about vegetables. Uh, how do we get to know them? How do we get to like them and make them our friends? <laughs> uh, this is John Smetanka. So, Abra, we've been, we've been leading up to the following. Okay. <laughs> this book, which I found fascinating. I really found this book fascinating. Mm. Um, I would, a little background. When I started into adulthood, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to cook. I mean, it was <coughs> why I hated the idea of me cooking. Was it because uh, I was a man and man don't cook? No, that didn't <laughs> have anything to do with it. What happened was that my parents were both very good cooks, yeah. but the kitchen was small enough and <laughs> that they would get in each other's way. <laughs> and that led to mom the first part of our life being this great cook she did the cooking later on my mother couldn't take it any longer and she (laughs) said fine alan you cook (laughs) you want to cook but you got to clean it up (laughs) but so at any rate i can't even remember when it was that i first learned i think i was making my father's spaghetti sauce Mm. i had to do it because i was in a school where i was required one sunday to make the meal for the for mm-hmm. the school, mm-hmm. and I made it 
Oh, you're going to love this. <laughs> Our family consists loved garlic. Mm. We love garlic. And so I, when Dad gave me the recipe, such and such, this meats, you know, sauce, and three cloves of garlic. That doesn't seem like so much. I had no idea what a clove was when I got this book. I mm-hmm. thought it meant three whole garlics. I mean, that could be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I also love garlic. <laughs> so <coughs> I cooked this for the students. Blew everybody's heads off. <laughs> it, it just it just didn't go anywhere. But They're no no vampires anywhere to no be seen. <laughs> we didn't have vampires for a year. Okay. <laughs> My brother came along, same school at a different time, and for some reason or other, he cooked the same spaghetti sauce from Dad's spaghetti recipe. And whether he didn't overpower mm-hmm. with too much garlic or whatever it was, when he served this with his spaghetti. The rest of the, the class didn't want any more spaghetti. They just <laughs> want the sauce. They just love the sauce. So, at any rate, uh, that started me. Mm. And I have sp- uh, spasmodically increased <laughs> my love for cooking. Now it's just a heck of a lot of fun. Mm. I really. Somebody, one of my friends said it's like a, a chemistry program, mm. like a chemistry set. You can put all different kinds of things and look what mm-hmm. comes up. You know, yeah. blue things is smoke and, and whatnot. However, um, I know that I would s- I would definitely benefit from you teaching me how to respect <laughs> vegetables <laughs> and to not boil them to into into mush, <laughs> which is I, what I tend to do. It's funny. I actually don't think there's a boiled recipe in the book. Um, so the way that I think about cooking vegetables is start first with the ingredient, um, which is, again, getting back to growing on the farm is that instead of looking for something, you know, thinking up a recipe and then going out and hunting the ingredient, all of our menus, both, you know, at the first farm and also at Grainer Farm where I am now, uh, start with looking at the ingredients that are on hand and the vegetables that are around. What's showing best? What do you have a lot of? You know, all of those sorts of things. And then I apply a, a preparation technique. And that, I think, for me, is sort of thinking about how restaurants work and that, you know, that's a, a more chef-driven maybe way of looking at it. Like, mm. do I want the texture of a roasted carrot or do I want the crisp of a raw carrot? You know, different things like that. Um Part of that comes from, you know, while we grow a tremendous diversity of things in this state and in this region, we also grow the same things every year. And so every year it's asparagus season and you eat as much asparagus as you can in that six to, you know, seven weeks. And by the end, you don't want to eat anymore. <laughs> and when, and then when, you know, the next year comes around, if you've had people over for dinner during asparagus season, you, you know, shouldn't make it the same way necessarily. Um, and so the you know a raw shaved salad of you know thinly sliced asparagus stalks is very different from a set of grilled asparagus that has a bunch of hollandaise on it they're both delicious but they're very different um and so it's about sort of playing to the different strengths and the different attributes of these vegetables and coaxing different sort of faces out of them um you know i i often liken that to 
the way people accessorize their clothing. You know, like you, you know, worked in a law firm, so I'm sure you had black suits and blue suits. Oh, yeah. and, Absolutely, that's and it. And if you really <laughs> wanted to jazz it up, maybe you had a red tie. <laughs> but if you were going out, you might have just kept it with a black tie. Or maybe you didn't wear a tie and you had the first couple buttons undone. It's the same suit, but they present very differently. Um, and for women, I think that's that's also true. You know, if you've got a black dress, you can wear it with a pair of Chuck Taylors and a denim jacket. And that's one thing, you know, you can go to the beach or go to, you know, Redimax and be perfectly at home. Or you can put on red high heels and a big statement necklace and go to the acorn, you know, and it's, it's a very different thing, but it's the same dress. And I think that vegetables function that way a lot too. So you've got the ingredient, the preparation technique, and then all of those accessories, which are the flavor components, the flavor additions. So, um, when I think about beets, you know, people really hate beets. It's really surprising to me. Um, but I cook them pretty much the same way most times, which is steam roasting them. So that's a combination of it's roasting in the oven, but with a little bit of water in the pan so that it generates steam. It cooks faster. They don't have that same like dehydrating effect that a normal roast would have. And then you've got these like really wonderful beets that are similar in texture to a boiled beet, but the flavor is a bit more concentrated. And the recipe in the book, is with um, smoked white fish and sour cream and dill and some sunflower seeds. Very kind of Eastern European in heritage, but also very true to the food traditions of the Northern Midwest. Smoked fish is a huge part of our food culture. Mm-hmm. Um, those same beets could be dressed exactly the same way with oranges and feta and pistachios and mint in the wintertime when oranges are like, you know, just perfect or with apple and cheddar and walnuts in the fall or, you know, go on and go on and go on. Um, and then you could also take those beets and puree them with some olive oil and make a, a you know a smooth puree and then blend that with some white beans to make a dip to have you know dip veggies in for your next Super Bowl party or you could thin that puree out and make a, a version of borscht the, the beet soup or you could use that puree and dress a pasta and the recipe in the book for this is with um, pickled golden raisins and poppy seeds so again very Eastern European in its in its history um, but presents very differently than if you were to take that beet puree and put it on a sandwich with some sliced turkey and arugula, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it, they all work the same. <clears throat> so that's what I mean by um, kind of the excitement and the diversity around vegetables and how to how to do it. The way I often describe the book is that it's sort of like an NCAA bracket, but in reverse. So, <laughs> so you start with the winner, which is the vegetable. Yeah. Apply again, apply that preparation technique, um, and then out from there go the the different variations. So it's sort of like Up a to branch. 64. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about your book because mm-hmm. uh, I found it fascinating. I, I've looked at cookbooks. In fact, I went back to my uh, kitchen when I first uh, picked up your book, and I said, what's different about this book as opposed to the other cookbooks that I've mm-hmm. got? And I'm, I'm not a – they're like three inches thick I mean, mm-hmm. that, that um, uh, all together. However, uh, your book – has a different approach than any book I've ever seen. Mm. There is Abra Barons talking about her history uh, and with this particular vegetable. There is Abra Barons telling us the history of the vegetable, where it came from. So you have some perspectives. Um, you have Abra Barons talking about, uh, oh, for example, how to pick a good, get the right vegetable at the right time mm-hmm. because 
you talk about how it's important in the growing season for each vegetable to get the right time. Mm -hmm. They come out in different uh, formats, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, at different times of the year, different conditions. Uh, frost comes mm -hmm. on, it costs, costs a certain problem. You talked about with carrots, mm -hmm. uh, it makes a difference there. But each then each of the chapters, which are all headed by the, a particular vegetable, then also has how to cook them, mm -hmm. the variety, how to mix them up with other things like beef or uh, uh, various kinds of meat or various kinds of uh, fish or whatever it happens mm -hmm. to be. So what I really liked about this is if you want to just take um, and, and find out how to make a dish, you could do that. Mm -hmm. You can go find a recipe that's in here. If you want to find out why <laughs> the this particular vegetable is popular or uh, tasty or how it can be tasty even though you don't really cucumbers all right there's a chapter on <laughs> cucumbers i want to talk i love cucumbers mm -hmm. uh, my dad used to make them in a uh in a sauce in a vinegar sauce or another time he would use some kind of with a cream sauce and mm -hmm. they came out great i love mm -hmm. them i'm in, but a look at a cucumber it's bland. It's full of water. It just stares at you, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then, of course, the other, my love, I've already given away my special love and our family love, which is garlic. Mm. So, how in your book do you address cucumbers and garlic? <laughs> um, well, I guess to back up, uh, you know, the book came out of a, a bi-weekly column I was writing for the Traverse City Record Eagle, which is the, the paper up in Traverse City. And so there, the chapters are very much based on, you know, the format of that column, which is an opening essay and then, you know, minimum two recipes. Um, and so that was kind of how it all started. And the point of the column and then the book was to really be a, a, a an educational tool or a resource for people who didn't have the same level of experience with vegetables that I had. So, you know, I, mentioned people hate beets well at almost every farmer's market somebody would come to me and be like okay beets like what how do I cook a beet what do I do with them what do I do with all these greens and it was every week and then it was like kohlrabi what is kohlrabi what well like what do I do with this thing how do I store it how do why do I keep basil on the counter but I keep parsley in the fridge you know all of these things that sort of became second nature to us as growers because we were just dealing with it you know minimum eight hours a day, often more than that. Um, and so wanting to really pass that on to people. Um, and so the way that I approach it is, yes, it opens with this essay in part because again, food is people. And so uh, it's, you know, trying to convey some of that context or tell that story that we were talking about earlier. Um, and, and if it's the, if it's my story, cause honestly, like, you know, who cares if Aberbarons wrote a book about this? Like nobody knows me. I'm not a celebrity chef. I don't have a TV show, you know, none of that stuff. And so I wanted to give people kind of a window into where I was coming from and, and what the context was for me. Um, and then also about the individual plant, you know, what I learned about growing it, where it fits into our world. Um, and then after that, there's a section on how to select it at the market, how to store it, and then different notes on it, you know, cause different, not no one plant is the same. And then after that, it goes into the recipes. And so, you know, cucumbers is a good example that 
most of the time, I just think you eat cucumbers raw, chopped up into a salad or, you know, pickles or something like that. But my friend Tim, who I learned so much from always, who had a wonderful food blog called Lottie and Doof, uh, he posted something about blistering cucumbers and um, how to, you know, sear them really hard in a pan. And I remember in cooking school, we made buttered cucumbers, which I thought were terrible because it was like warm and cooked in butter and a little bit of chicken stock. And I feel like the crispness of a cucumber is really an attribute, not a not a weakness. And so it was about how to, you know, kind of create some of this excitement through the different preparation techniques. Fascinating. I'm gonna I'm going to take a break right now. We're we're talking to Abra Barons, who is the author of Roughage about vegetables. It's sort of a uh, an encyclopedia and a cookbook and a biography or autobiography and a study of of the history of, of food. So it's all these things. It's a fascinating book, and I encourage people to take a look at it it's, if they can find it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. This is John Smertanker on With Respect, and we'll be right back. We are now back on With Respect with Abra Behrens, who is the author of Roughage, a book on vegetables and why they are your friends or can be your, your dinner <laughs> companions and have a good time. Uh, this is John Smetanker, and we're, Smetanker and we're on With Respect. So, Abra, one thing I... Uh, you've mentioned several times Grainer Farms. What mm -hmm. is Grainer Farms? Grainer Farm is uh, where I am lucky enough to work, and it is a certified organic biodiverse vegetable farm here in Three Oaks. It started um, because Rob Buono and Liz Cacelli, the owners, uh, both wanted to have access, more access to organic produce in the region, but also because they wanted to create a farm camp for kids. And so we, um, Rob's mom did a lot of education, early education based around life cycles um, and so they wanted to create and extend that programming here so I uh that's how it started, and it has now grown into a, a beautiful biodiverse vegetable farm that has a 100-member CSA program, which is community-supported <laughs> community agriculture. So that is where a family buys into our farm in the spring with a cash investment, and then they're paid back in vegetables throughout the season. And it started in the 70s as a way to help um, try to provide some sort of joint uh, mitigated risk for vegetable farmers. I mean, farming is a notoriously fickle industry that is um, has a lot of risk, and and so wanting people to to be invested in it. And so the idea is that if you're a CSA member, you've put money into a farm when cash flow is generally light, which is in the spring because you haven't sold much lately, and then you get paid back over the course of the year, but without any sort of real demand on you know it sort of upends the market economy because if you put your money in and you you just want to buy tomatoes, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to get a little bit of everything. And if there's a huge hailstorm and all the tomato plants are ruined, you're not going to get any tomatoes, but you're still going to pay that farm to help mitigate their risk of growing this diversity of crops. 
So uh, we have 100 members in our farm, as well as a robust on-farm farm store, which is um, filled with local products like, um, you know, again, pork and chicken and fish all from the surrounding area, really amazing cheeses that are made in this region, um, fruit from Abby Klug up in St. Joe and asparagus and ramps from her family's farm. Um, And then there's the things that I make out of the kitchen, which is also, you know, our wood-fired bread that's made with the grain. We have about 350 acres of organic small grain on grainers, um, down to their you know, husbandry or whatever the words are. And um, so I get that wheat and get to make a naturally leavened sourdough bread out of it and then mm. bake it in our wood oven. All right. Um, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I, the, there's one thing in my life that I have never really cottoned to, mm. as it were. <clears throat> bread. Mm. I Bread is bread is bread. Mm-hmm. I mean, sourdough, okay. But beyond that, mm-hmm. it's bread. Well, it's interesting. But but virtually every woman that I know loves bread more than life. (laughs) Maybe our constitutions are different. Um, Well, I think it's an interesting point, Brad. I mean, with the start of the pandemic, there was that, remember everybody was making sourdough at home and it was like this mad dash on flour. Everyone was baking because they were home suddenly Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all those things. And I think we saw, you know, our food system is really specialized. And in a lot of ways, I didn't get into bread baking when I lived in Chicago because there were great bakeries. Why would I bother? You know, it's a tedious work. Um, and I think anything that's really simple that's made with, you know, flour, water, yeast and salt um, is is fickle because it has there's so there's so few things to affect the outcome that those things make a dramatic difference. And so um you know, I don't know that we all need to specialize in bread, but I also know that I really enjoy baking it. And there's something just so magical about, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, mixing together this like gloppy slop of, of flour and water and my sourdough starter and salt. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of several hours, folding it to develop and organize the gluten and then shaping it, letting it retard overnight in the fridge. And then, you know, the magic of heat and it becomes this like beautiful thing that you want to eat. Um. Well, I, I would I, I preface my negative uh, <laughs> about about bread. However, I have had specialty breads mm. that really are good yeah. for me. I mean, I now I you know I have to confess that I've I've grown up on this. Which I think also speaks to the industrialization of our food. So, you Mm -hmm. know, this is people think sourdough is a new thing. It's an incredibly old process. It's some of the first bread that was made was sourdough. And then in the 1950s, as we came out of the the war effort of World War II, there was a huge industrialization of the food world um, that meant that that led to uniformity. Um, Consistency was prized in some ways above flavor, ease, um, and, you know, the best things since sliced bread. Well, that's kind of when sliced bread came to be and you could pass it through a slicer because it was so soft. You Mm -hmm. know, it Mm -hmm. was an easy thing to do. Um, And I think that, you know, I don't know that any of that some of it was wrong, you know, some of the the Earl Buttses of the world, the get big or get out, you know, it didn't do great things for our food system. But I don't, I think it's more of a pendulum and, you know, a constant course correction. It's like anything. It's like, do you, uh, do you sail? Are you a sailor? I used to. Um, I don't sail really, but my sister does, Sally, um, who you know. And um, I remember talking to her about it one time and how you, you're never sailing in a straight line. You're, you know, pitching mm-hmm. back and forth on the wind. And I think to a degree 
that's sort of what we all do. You know, we swing, uh, you know, no, no fat, fat's evil in the eighties. And now suddenly mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. carbs or suddenly it's X, Y, or Z it's, it's gluten, it's dairy, it's all those things. And I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just like sort of cynical about it, but I think that what you're describing about bread is true for a lot of people about different parts of the food world, including vegetables. And, you know, that's where the title of the book comes from, is that this idea that eating vegetables is is drudgery. It's, you know, you got to eat your roughage. And uh, it doesn't need to be. And I think that's kind of the point for me. Well, I'm looking forward to, I, uh, to trying out a couple of your recipes mm -hmm. because, I mean, I read books that authors write. I've read much of your book. Uh, the the print part I have not yet experimented with with uh, with the various recipes but I'm going to because uh, you sold me <laughs> <laughs> and I know that I if I I love asparagus except I always overcook it mm. and I've got to figure out how I can enjoy asparagus which I like mm -hmm. um, and still not turn it into uh, green mush you know I'll say don't cook it at all then. Try it raw. And I remember the first time I ever harvested asparagus. Again, Roger Bowser from Zingerman's took us all out into a field where we were harvesting the asparagus during asparagus season for the deli and literally snapped a stalk out of the ground and shoved it in my mouth. And I had never, I never thought of eating it raw before. In the same way that I remember the first time I had sushi, I was like, you can do this? Um, <laughs> but you can. And, yeah. and then you get to taste it and it's like, you know, really unadorned state and decide if you like it. And most vegetables, you know, even beets, like you can eat beets raw. Uh, they, they do have a lot of oxalic acid in them. So um, for me, if I eat beets raw, it, it tickles my throat for a couple days. Um, but when you realize you can eat them raw, then there's no danger in undercooking them. Um, but sometimes also they benefit from a long cook, you know, like, you know, kohlrabi or um, some of those things get really sweet the longer and slower they're stewed or things like the hearty greens, you know, like collard greens and kale and stuff like that, that you don't need to cook into oblivion, but you can and the flavors change dramatically. So I think it's just about that spectrum. And I think that's the other thing I would say is that you know, one of the things that I'm not, I'm a pretty even tempered lady. Um, but one of the things that really makes me angry is this idea that people don't feel like they have the authority over their own food. And I think that with the advent of celebrity chef culture and the food network mm. and all of these cookbooks, you know, you said it yourself. Your mom did most of the cooking. Women cook a lot in homes. Parents cook a lot in homes. You know who else is busy? Parents. And yet somehow, we've been sold these products in the form of celebrity chefdom that says you're not good enough. Well, garbage. Like if you taste it and you like it, then it's good enough and mm -hmm. it might not be perfect and that's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. Nothing is ever perfect. And so one of the things that I hope comes out of this book and that feels really important to me is to say, here are some tools that might make it easier. It might give you some insight into that world that's going to tell you you're not good enough to show you that you are. And if you make dinner for your family and you guys all sit around, some of the like best meals I've had in my life, the food was terrible because something got screwed up and it became the joke and it became, you know, the thing that uh. we laughed about because it's about being at the table. I mean, Food is a vehicle for fellowship. It's a vehicle for, for work and for nutrients. And it's all of these things. But in and of itself, I mean, I guess the flavor is prized, but it's, 
it's about a lot more than just like, did I cook that perfectly? Mm-hmm. And if you get tripped up on that, it makes it really hard to enjoy the other stuff. You know, it's interesting We're getting pretty that you deep men- here, John. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's interesting you mention it because I get frustrated when I have, uh, I get HelloFresh is mm-hmm. the cooking the uh, uh, cook for yourself where they mm-hmm. send you the ingredients, and when I miss, oh, I gosh, I forgot. I've got the the cheese left. I forgot to mm, put it on, mm-hmm. or the arugula, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I forgot, and I've said, oh, it's a failure. Mm. It's not a failure. No, it's it's, not. it's my it's today's dinner. You know what I'll say about that too is that I think one of the things that's really hard is, and I struggle with this. I struggle following a recipe unless I take the time to actually internalize what the author of that recipe Mm. is trying to achieve. So what role is the cheese playing? What role is the the arugula playing? Mm -hmm. And I think that for me is why there's so much information about the whys and the hows in this book because I'm really bad at memorization. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I can barely remember the dates of the Civil War, but I understand why the Civil War happened and the context around it, because that makes sense to me. Um, But just rote memorization is difficult. And Mm -hmm. I think the same is true if you're trying to follow something and you don't really know where you're going or have an internalized sense of it, it's really hard to get there. Very interesting. That's a very interesting point. Um, Well, Unfortunately, we're beginning to run out of time here. And I, I, you're writing other books, right? Yes, actually. I So it is currently April, and in late September, early October, my second book, Grist, which is a practical guide to grains and legumes, will come okay. out. All right. um, so again, very similar in in structure to Ruffage. Again, I like structure and then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of strong boundaries and then complete freedom within that. Um, so this is a very similar book about how to incorporate whole grains and legumes into your diet. And it's it's there's a little bit of baking, but it's not a baking book. Okay. <laughs> uh, we are almost out of time. You did get awards, didn't you? Uh, Tell us about your awards. <laughs> Come on, humility. Well, I think, uh, you know... I I was lucky enough to be honored um, for a James Beard Foundation award for the um, nomination for Ruffage and for the cooking that we do at Grainer. But then I think my favorite award was the Michigan Notables book, which Ah, is put on by the uh, state library system. Another one of our prior guests, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah. At any rate, Abra Behrens, (laughs) thank you very much for joining us. It was great. I enjoy your book. Uh, Again, the book is called Ruffage. And it's uh, a book that I recommend for whether you're good at it, whether you're an expert (laughs) cook, or you're just like me. I just (laughs) muck about in the kitchen and and throw things together like uh, 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 Julia Childs. Throw it on the floor, put it back (laughs) in, toss some wine on it. Yeah. The wine's always a good lubricant. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The name of our program is With Respect. We're on every Sunday and Thursday. And until next time, remember our motto. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.